message this morning comes from the, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. The reading will be from 39 through verse 49. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to Help us now to consider these words, to have eyes to see what these words are describing. And Father, I pray for your help as almost more than any other passage I feel unworthy and insufficient to proclaim the message that we see here. So Lord, help us. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may have heard that Brother Andrew, the author of the book God's Smuggler, uh, recently passed away at the age of 94. And Brother Andrew was best known for seeking to smuggle Bibles and other Christian literature into communist countries that were closed to Christian missionary workers. And he founded the international ministry Open Doors. Uh, which is a ministry that uh, I depend upon uh, to know how best to pray for the persecuted church throughout the world. Uh, Brother Andrew's testimony is that he met Christ while recovering in a hospital from a bullet wound that he suffered while fighting for the Netherlands in World War II. And while in that hospital, he began to read the Bible and to seriously consider what the Bible said. And he came face to face with his sin and saw his need for salvation in the scriptures. And he also saw Christ as the Savior for sinners like him. And I'm sure that there are many other Christians who have a, a similar testimony uh, of meeting Christ and either coming to be born again or making a serious spiritual commitment while in a hospital. Charles Spurgeon the great 
uh, 19th century evangelistic preacher in London shares in his autobiography that, that he met Christ while he was 16 in a small Methodist church in the middle of a snowstorm. He was on his way to his family's church for uh, the evening service when he stepped into this little Methodist church to get out of the snowstorm for a bit, and they were in the middle of having their service, and, and their own preacher uh, had been prevented from coming to the service because of the, uh, the storm that night, so a lowly, uneducated deacon got up uh, to preach in that service, and Spurgeon said he, he picked out just one verse, Isaiah 55, 22, which says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And the deacon just, just gave all he had to preach that message. Look unto Christ, look unto him, and be ye saved, and pointed right at Charles Spurgeon, and called him to look to Christ, to be saved. And Spurgeon came under the conviction of his own need to have Christ as his Savior. And there are countless other believers who, like Spurgeon, came under the conviction of their own need for Christ while hearing the Word of God preached in a church building. I myself, having been, been raised in an evangelical free church uh, much like ours, heard the words of Christ preached and talked about all throughout my childhood, but I truly came to meet Jesus when I was 17 years old and was helping to move my friend into a ministry house in North Omaha. And it was in that house, talking with my friend, who I thought was making the biggest mistake of his life, uh, when I came to see that I was not a Christian and that I desperately needed the salvation that a relationship with Christ could provide for me. And I'm sure that there are many other believers who would also have a similar testimony of meeting Christ while having a conversation with a good friend. I don't know about you, but one of the great joys in the coming kingdom that I am looking forward to is hearing believers talk about how they met Jesus, sharing where they were when they realized that he was their Savior, sharing about the time of life they were in when they came to know Christ. We'll hear many who met Jesus while they were in a hospital or in a church or talking with a friend. There will only be one who will say that he met Jesus while he was dying on a cross. And that's this guy that we read about in Luke's gospel. And I can't wait to talk with him because he may be able to tell us more than anyone else how Christ showed his love for us and how incredibly wonderful is the joy of being forgiven and welcomed into God's presence when you know that you are so undeserving of it. So we have come now to this remarkable passage this morning in, in Luke's gospel. This could be called the very heart of his gospel, the salvation of the thief on the cross and the death of our Lord. Uh, as J.C. Ryle said about this passage, these verses deserve to be printed in letters of gold. 
for they have probably been the salvation of myriads of souls. So our main theme then from these verses is the death of Christ opened the way for even the most undeserving sinners to be right with God. As we, as we come down to our passage, Jesus has been crucified. He's hanging by nails on a cross of wood in between two criminals who are also being crucified. At the same time, Jesus has endured the taunts and mocking of the religious leaders and Roman soldiers, challenging him to prove that he is the Christ, prove he is the Son of God by saving himself and coming down off the cross. And Luke has told us that the Lord Jesus has responded by loving his enemies, by praying for his persecutors. He asked God the Father to forgive them. Now in these, in these next verses, we're going to witness some amazing and humbling things as we observe Jesus dying on the cross. The first that we observe here is just the miracle and reward of faith and repentance. The miracle and reward of faith and repentance, verses 39 through 43. So here is a man that uh, we're introduced to that could definitely make a claim for the title of the unlikeliest convert. Uh, the, the Apostle Paul could also make a case uh, for that title. Maybe you think that, that you even might be in that same category, but allow me to give some reasons as to why this man that we meet here in Luke 23 should definitely be considered as the unlikeliest convert. First, he obviously had a great lack of spiritual interest prior to this point. The only description that we are given of him is that he was a criminal. As some translations have it, that he is an evildoer. He was most known for his life of crime and taking what he wanted from others and most likely causing great harm to them as well. Uh, the one example that we are shown in the Gospel of Luke of some criminals uh, are those that Jesus describes in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Uh, there the robbers uh, beat and stripped the man, robbing him and then left him for dead. And that is the kind of man this was, kind of robber this was, and he was now paying for his crimes by hanging on a cross next to Jesus. Another reason why he was such an unlikely convert was because of the, the peer pressure around him at the time of his conversion. Everyone was against Jesus. The soldiers were mocking him. The religious leaders, those who were looked up to by the people of Israel as those who really followed God, the religious leaders were scoffing at Jesus, trying to shame him, as was the other criminal on the other side of him here. So we're told in Matthew 27, verse 44, that even this criminal had also joined in with the crowd, with the other criminal, hurling insults at Jesus. He was doing it too. But then something happened to change his mind about the Lord. He knew that if he spoke up in Jesus' defense, as he did, that he might become the target of the crowd's hate. So this truly is an amazing turnaround for this man. It's incredibly unlikely. 
And let's also just consider what, what he saw when he looked at Jesus. The man he came to believe was the Messiah, and the one who had the authority and the power to save him from God's judgment that he knew he would face, but he was also hanging on a cross with him. When the criminal put his faith in Jesus, Jesus was the object of taunts and mocking. He was weak. He was too weak to carry his own cross, while this criminal probably also had to do. He had been beaten. He was bleeding. He had been spit on. By all appearances, Jesus did not look like he could save anyone. There was nothing in Jesus' appearance that could have led this man to believe he really was a king who had authority to grant anyone entrance into his eternal kingdom. And yet, this man put his faith for salvation in him. He really believed Jesus was the Christ. Again, how unlikely this is. So friends, we, we are shown by the faith of this man on the cross that faith and repentance really are a miracle. It's a miracle. It's a miraculous work of God for anyone to come to faith and repentance in Christ. Remember how, how Jesus put it in that famous passage in John 3. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just like no one can create their own physical life, no one can create their own spiritual life. Jesus goes on to say in that same passage, speaking of the Holy Spirit, the wind blows where it wishes. And just to note, the Greek word for wind and spirit are the same here. So he's talking about the Spirit of God. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Anyone who comes to saving faith in Christ is a new person. They've been given spiritual life to believe and to enter the kingdom, and that is what's happened to this man, and that transformation miraculously occurred while he was hanging on the cross next to Christ. This man's faith was a miracle, as is every man's faith, which is so, so clearly shown in this passage. And we know this man truly did come to saving faith because of the clear evidence that Luke provides us of his transformation. He provides us here with a wonderful lesson of what it means to repent and believe and become a follower of Jesus, even though his conversion happened at just about the last minute for him. First, uh, he shows a great desire to defend the honor of the Lord Jesus as well as a fear of God here. He rebukes the other criminal for railing at, at Christ along with the crowd, and he even shows his concern for this man, warning him of the judgment that he will soon face before God. Those who are truly in the faith have a passion to see Jesus Christ honored and glorified, and they have a burden for those they know who are not prepared for, for the judgment who are not prepared to face the Lord in judgment. And then he, he acknowledges his guilt. He also acknowledges his guilt and that he deserves to be condemned by God for his sins. Look at verse 40 
in verse 41 there, he says, um, Do not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. You know, one clear mark that, that, that you know someone is, is re- repenting is that they agree with God's word that they have done what is evil in God's sight. That they truly are sinners and that they are deserving God's just condemnation against them. They say with the tax collector in Jesus' parable, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He also recognizes the righteousness of Christ here. Verse 41, but this man has done nothing wrong. He had been given spiritual eyes to see that Jesus, though he's there nailed to the cross with him, Jesus had done nothing wrong. He's not suffering for his own sins. He's not being condemned by God as a sinner, but that Jesus is righteous. He also knows, again, completely by faith, and definitely not by what he saw, that Jesus is truly the Christ. That Jesus is truly the King. For he humbly requests that Jesus remember him when he comes into his kingdom. He prays for salvation. Putting his hope and faith in Jesus as the one who who both has the authority and the power to save him and bring him into the kingdom of God. We see Jesus then fulfill what he said in response uh, from John 6, 67. There Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here with this criminal on his last day on this earth, the Father finally brought him to Jesus. He providentially meets Jesus while he was nailed to the cross beside him. And there he miraculously came to faith. There he professed his belief in Jesus and came to him. And Jesus assured him of his place in the kingdom. Jesus, the Savior King, welcomed him in. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. So friends, our salvation cannot be based on how we live. It cannot be based on what we've done. It cannot be based on which family we were born into, or even which church we were a part of, or how often we showed up at that church. The This short interaction between a crucified criminal and and the crucified Jesus shows us salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the crucified Christ alone. Imagine if, if Jesus would have responded to this criminal's request with, remember you? You want me to remember you? You mean... Remember all of your sins? Remember how you disobeyed God in almost everything you did? How you lied, cheated, and and stole? Remember how you were mocking me just a few minutes ago? Before you all of a sudden had this change of heart now? You want me? 
to remember you? Well, that's what we might have expected Jesus to say. That's definitely what this criminal deserved. That's also what we would deserve. That's not the answer that he received. Truly I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. This man had lived his life separated from God because of his sin and his rebellion. He was living out the sin of Adam and Eve, saying, I can decide for myself what's right and wrong. I can, I can decide for myself what I want to do and how I want to live. I don't need God telling me what to do, where to go, what to believe. That's how he lived his life. But now, through his faith in Christ, he will spend eternity, eternity with Jesus in paradise. He put his faith and his hope in Jesus for salvation. He repented of his dead works and looked to Christ for his righteousness. My friend, if you have not yet followed this man's example, I strongly encourage you to do so today. Secondly, we see the awesome significance of the death of Christ, verses 44 through 47. Now, there are two massively significant and awe-inspiring miracles that took place while Jesus was on the cross, and uh, Luke tells us about them here. Uh, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Uh, in, in the scriptures, darkness is often associated with God's judgment or with the evil world in opposition to the light of God. And here we have darkness falling upon the land in the middle of the day from about noon until 3 p.m. Uh, the Lord spoke through the prophet Amos about a day when he said, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's Amos 8 9. Uh, Luke doesn't say that the sun went down here in the middle of the day, just that the sun's light failed, which points to a, a supernatural darkness. It, it reminds us of, of the darkness uh, upon Egypt in, in the ninth plague. This is a, a miraculous work of God to signify something very serious is happening. It was, it was the time, it was the hour when darkness reigned upon the earth. The light of the world was nailed to the cross, and it seemed that Satan had won. It seemed like the offspring of the serpent had not just bruised the heel of the Son of God, but had, had crushed him, had put his light out. Satan does not have the power to blot out the Son's light. Only the Creator could have that power and that authority. So this, therefore, was was from God. It's a darkness from God. It was a sign of God's judgment. His, his just wrath was being poured out upon the earth on, on one particular subject. It was his righteous son. During wrath upon himself here. Paying the dreadful penalty for the sins of his people. As the prophet Joel records the Lord saying in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, 
Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness like blackness. There is spread upon the mountains. The Apostles' Creed states that Christ descended into hell. I don't think that that's accurate. I believe it's a little misleading, but, but although Christ's spirit did not descend into hell, Jesus did indeed suffer the worst of hell on the cross, for he suffered God's unrelenting wrath against sin and rebellion during this time of darkness on the cross. He drank the cup of the Lord's wrath, emptying it completely for us here. And we're also told here that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That was a massively significant miraculous sign of what Christ was accomplishing through his death on the cross. This, this curtain uh, divided the holy place in the temple from the inner chamber that is the holy of holies, the place where God's presence was believed to dwell upon the mercy seat. Uh, no one was allowed entrance into the holy of holies except for one high priest, just, just one time of year on the day of atonement to offer sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And so now while Jesus was suffering in the darkness of the wrath of God on the cross, this huge curtain, about three to four inches thick, was torn in two, Matthew tells us, from, from top to bottom, symbolizing that, that, that the way has now been opened for sinners to come into the presence of God. No more sacrifices were necessary. No more ceremonies on the Day of Atonement were needed. For Christ has fully paid for the sins of the people. And he's opened the way. He's opened the way here for sinners to be at peace with God. For people to be in relationship with the God of heaven. And Luke then describes for us the, most, uh, the moment here when Jesus paid the ultimate price. The moment when he gave his life, as he said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He quotes here from Psalm 31, verse 5, and expressing uh, his, his great trust in God as he entered through death's door. Look at verse 46 and 47. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. Death is a scary thing for us. It's something that we only experience once, and none of us are sure just what it will be like. It's a little like falling asleep. None of us really knows how that happens. You know, we, we can't just turn a switch and go from consciousness to unconsciousness. Even though maybe some wives think that uh, your husbands, that, that's how it works for them. You know, they can just turn that switch on anytime they want and, and be asleep. But, but, but no, we, we just lie down and we close our eyes and we wait. And eventually, we're asleep. Now, I've watched people die, 
I've been with people who were suffering and wished death would come much sooner than it did. I've also been with people who were doing all they could to fight it. But eventually it came for them, as it will for all of us. And what Luke is showing us here is that because Jesus the Savior went through death for us, that now we need not fear death at all. That for all those who repent and come to him in faith, like that thief on the cross, when death comes, he will bring us right into the very presence of God in paradise. If we entrust our souls into his hands, he will take us home. He will take us home when we walk through death's door. Because of what the centurion says here. Centurion declared that Jesus was righteous, not just innocent. Not simply just innocent. He was righteous. Certainly this man was righteous, the centurion says. And the apostle Peter explains in his letter that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous one suffering for our sins, that, that is, here's the purpose, here's the reason why, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ suffered. What's the purpose for the cross? He suffered there for the unrighteous, for our sins, so that he, being the righteous one, can bring us in to be with God in his presence, having Christ's righteousness covering us. This is good news. This is good news. Lastly, we're going to see the abhorrence of the death of Christ. The abhorrence of the death of Christ. Verses 48 and 49. So this is what we are shown here in these verses. The abhorrence of the death of Christ. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So this was a terribly unjust, wicked demonstration of the utter depravity and rebellion against God that man showed here. This was the ultimate manifestation of the sin in the Garden of Eden when the serpent tempted Eve by saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Mankind grasped at that opportunity to decide for ourselves what's good, to decide for ourselves what's evil. We said we didn't need God anymore. We didn't need God to tell us what's right and wrong. We could make ourselves great without him. And here it is. Here it is, what humanity ends up doing, following in that way, we torture and kill a righteous man, the only completely righteous man that ever lived. We mocked and slandered and crucified the very one who gave us life and mercifully sustained life and then came to the earth in, in human flesh and lived a life of love and doing good 
for those who are enslaved by demons, who are enslaved by their sin and by sickness and disability, and, they, and he never asked for anything in return. And what did the ones who were supposed to be the best uh, for us or the, or the best of us, the religious leaders, what did, what did they do? Those in spiritual leadership, those in political leadership, what did they do? They crucify him. They crucify him and mock him and spit on him. This indeed was awful. This was the most unjust, unrighteous, greatest evil that's ever been committed by human beings. And these, these people in the crowd, they see it. They come watching, watching the spectacle. They want to see the spectacle, but they go home deeply troubled. They knew. They knew. They knew this was the case, that it was the most unjust and unrighteous thing they'd ever witnessed. And they went to their homes beating their breasts, which was a sign of great sorrow and even repentance. They knew he didn't deserve this, and they were sickened by it. They saw the abhorrence of the death of Christ, and the abhorrence of the death of Christ was the abhorrence of our sin. That's what they saw. They may have been asking the question that we often ask in our hearts when something terribly unjust takes place. Why would God allow this to happen? But although it was awful, God worked through it for good. It was similar to how Joseph explained his theological understanding of what his brothers had done to him in the book of Genesis when they had betrayed him and sold him into slavery. He said in Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. The answer the Bible gives us as to why God allowed such an evil event to take place was because of God's great love for his chosen people. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now because of the cross of Christ and his suffering as the, the sacrifice of atonement for us, now nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is what we are shown right here in these words. This is what occurred when Christ gave up his life on the cross.